Okay, it's been a year since Brian Armstrong's incredibly controversial blog post. Coinbase is a mission-focused company. Today, a year after, he did that incredible, incredibly bold mission statement that we will not talk about social issues at Coinbase, and he took all the arrows. Well, now he is taking the hornet's nest into the end zone, and he is spiking the ball. Wow. I mean, it is a charge tweet storm. And then Nat Manning from Kettle is with us to talk about how his startup is using machine learning to figure out where the next fires are going to be in California's crazy, insane fire zones in California and all these homes burning. We go deep into extreme weather. We go deep into protecting homes. And should people be allowed to rebuild in a fire zone? You're going to find out on this amazing episode. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by... Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. LinkedIn Marketing to redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash this week in startups and Zendesk qualifying startups can join the Zendesk for startups program and get six free months of Zendesk products. You'll also get access to an exclusive community of startups for advice and connections. Visit Zendesk.com twist today to get started. Okay, it has been one year since Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong wrote his controversial blog post and tweet storm. Coinbase is a mission-focused company, and today he updated uh, what's happened in the year since in a 13-tweet thread. Uh, also, during this time period, Coinbase went public in April and is no longer an $8 billion company. No, it's worth $49 billion. Um, here's the mo most important tweets from the thread, which you can read on your own. Um, one, you know, it's a number that starts a thread on Twitter, so I'll, I'll include the number. So the first tweet, it's been about a year since my mission-focused blog post. It wasn't easy to go through at that time, but looking back, it turned out to be one of the most positive changes I've made at Coinbase, and I'd recommend it to others. Okay, this is incredibly bold that he's coming out, and uh, basically, he's not kicking the hive, you know, the beehive right now. He just grabbed the beehive, he ran into the end zone, and he spiked the beehive. And now, <laughs> this people had forgotten about this whole controversy. He literally is bringing it back up. Brian Armstrong, say what you will, is fearless and uh, a great leader. And uh, whether you disagree with him or agree with him, fearless is definitely um, the, the number one descriptor of what he's doing. Number two, we have a much more aligned company now where we can focus on getting work done toward a mission. And it has allowed us to hire some of the best talent from organizations where employees are fed up with politics, infighting, and distraction. So if you remember, his basically his manifesto was, we are going to work at work. There will be no more discussion at work about political issues. And this was an incredibly challenging thing to do at the time because he did it during Black Lives Matter. Uh, and he did it specifically about people talking about police violence, uh, George Floyd, etc. So to decide on social media as a large technology company and tech companies are hated right now, that he is going to say no more discussion of Black Lives Matter or Israel-Palestine or any issue was really, really, um, how do I say this? Like, uh, I mean, it, it was, um, you know, he was, he was uh, kicking the hive and uh, he got stung a lot. People were very, very, very upset. And um, this um, was people said this would be the death of Coinbase, that they would never be able to get great talent. Uh, and my position on this was for every person who doesn't want to go work there, I think there's going to be 10 who do. Because my perception is, we hear from the people who care very much about political, social, uh, woke, uh, ideological, wealth disparity, Israel, Palestine, whoever's really into those things. Um, those causes me on human rights, uh, people would say I'm annoying. I mean, many people have told me to stop talking about human rights issues, and that I'm annoying, and they don't want to hear it from me. But I will keep talking about human rights issues, because it's something I'm passionate about. You know, um, to say you can't talk about these things at work, 
yes, it gets rid of the vocal people. But for every vocal person on Twitter or social media or, you know, uh, in the press or on TV or in podcasts, I would say there's 20 people who do not want to talk about these issues. Just like if you go to your, I don't know, holiday meal with all of your family and the extended families there and you got 50 or 75 people in your house. And it's a big giant party. And there's like five people who want to talk about politics. And the rest of the people just want to hang out, play softball, drink a couple of beers, uh, and have a good time and, and, and gorge themselves on turkey or whatever, you know, <laughs> you have at your family gatherings. Um, those five people can ruin it for the other 70, right? You've been there. People start talking about, you know, whatever, George Bush versus the Clintons or Trump versus Biden. It just turns into chaos and, and they ruin it for everybody else. And, and, and that's basically what he found. More people now are coming to work at Coinbase because they agree that work is for work and that politics and social issues you should do on your own time. And, and to Brian's um, further defense here, um, he was very clear, listen, it's, it's not that you can't talk about these things on your own time. It's not that these things aren't important. It's that we want everybody in the company 100% focused on our mission, which is something in the wheelhouse of making people financially literate and independent. And so we can do more good in the world by staying focused on our mission. And there might be other companies with the mission that you're passionate about, whether that's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Uyghurs in China, Black Lives Matter, wealth disparity, go work at a company that's focused on that. That's not what this company is focused on. And it's important for every company to be focused on something, just like Rick Warren said in the Purpose Driven Church. The premise of that book was a church needs to have a purpose. There needs to be one thing that your church is really good at and that you're focused on so that people know what to do when they're there and they have a sense of mission. Um, you, you'll see that here. We took our Slack and we said the Slack is now for one purpose organizing meetups for this week in startups. And once we said, hey, that's the mission of the Slack, not for marketing your products and services, uh, everybody sort of got aligned. The people who were there to market left and the people who were there to do the meetups um, became supercharged. Uh, so let's continue with the story. Uh, it's very important, I think, for every organization to have a clearly defined purpose and not drift from that. Tweet number three in the storm. Uh, one of the biggest concerns, and this is Brian Armstrong, one of the biggest concerns around our stance was that it would impact our diversity numbers. Since my post, we've grown our headcount about 110%. Uh, so that means they doubled, while our diversity numbers have remained the same or even improved on some metrics. So there's a key. Uh, people did say no black people will ever work. Uh, no people of color will ever work. Uh, women are not going to work at Coinbase. And obviously, that has not been the case, which would be directionally correct if you believe the fact uh, or if you come to it with the premise that the overwhelming majority of people, 90%, 95%, do not want politics, do not want social issues at work. I think anybody would actually say that. If you talk to 10 people, nine would say they don't want to have this be a focus at work, but they wouldn't say it on Twitter. So therefore, we're getting a warped perception of the world. And if you're on Twitter, you get a very warped, or any social media, you get a warped perception of the world. On Instagram, you think everybody's thin and looks great with their shirt off and a bikini, whatever and that everybody's constantly on a global vacation, YOLOing it out. Uh, and if you're on Twitter, you think everybody is obsessed with social justice and virtue signaling, and you get the idea. And on Facebook, you think everybody just had three babies. <laughs> it's just each of those social networks has a certain leaning, and, and Twitter can give you uh, a deranged view of the world. Number five, uh, what was amazing was the contrast between the news following my post and the reaction from employees and people who spoke to me in private while the media reports were mostly negative, and it even spawned some retaliatory and intellectually dishonest hit pieces. Uh, the reaction from both employees and people I spoke to in private was overwhelmingly and positive. Yeah, that's directionally correct. I think people are scared to talk about this in public. On episode, I think nine of all in, we talked about this issue, and I talked about it here on the podcast. And I think uniformly, uh, we were in favor of this. Uh, Sachs, Friedberg, and myself, and even uh, Chamath, who is a person of color, he didn't think that the blog post was written very well. Um, it was a little bit rambling, which it was long. Um, he thought they should look at everything through the lens of their mission, and he could have said it more deftly. Um, and Sachs and Freeberg thought, yeah, in their experience, people don't want to come to work to talk about politics. Uh, they want to do that on their own time. And uh, my position was at the time, and still remains, a lot of this exa is exacerbated because people aren't actually talking to each other, they're chatting with each other. If you're chatting, there's no empathy. 
you're doing this in a slack room, it takes over the entire organization more so during a pandemic, because everybody lives in slack, your company manifests itself in slack as opposed to a real world location, what's going to happen? All of a sudden, you see 78 messages in the random folder, everybody rushes over there. Oh, why are there 78 messages? Oh, and it's seven people out of 700 fighting about the Israeli Palestinian conflict or Uyghurs in China or Black Lives Matter, or police violence. And then people are like, hey, you know, maybe his point of view is good or oh, hey, I kind of love this. And then it just takes over. And now the entire company instead of working on the mission is spending 90% of their emotional energy and 20% of their actual time in those rooms. And it is exhausting. It's, I mean, you ever been in a, like a, a Twitter feed, or an iMessage thread when people are going at it about politics or religion or abortion or gun control? It might only take, you know, 30 minutes of your day to deal with that. But it might emotionally and spiritually and energy wise take half of your energy from the day. And it could put people in a mood where they want to quit the company or they feel hurt. And you know how it is when you feel hurt or when you feel misunderstood or you feel attacked. You ever have that where you feel attacked or misunderstood? And, you know, for two or three days, you're thinking about it. Now put that on the entire company. You're basically making the entire company feel those feelings. If you don't have business insurance, you failed one of the first steps in being a great entrepreneur. Startups should look no further than Embroker, E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R. Embroker's technology saves you time and money. Prices are up to 20% lower, and you're going to get better coverage than incumbents, and you go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes. When you work with Embroker, instead of business insurance incumbents, you're not dealing with these large, slow corporations, and the sign up takes just days, not weeks. The process is completely transparent. There is no opaque pricing. And I'm going to quickly explain two crucial types of insurance you need. Cyber insurance. What does it cover? It covers hacks. They happen all the time. And you need to have coverage for that. Plus, D&O insurance. This is for your directors, people on your board, and officers, the top five or six people of the company. If somebody does something dumb and you get sued, you need to protect the directors and officers because they're responsible. And even if you don't do something dumb and somebody still wants to sue you, because people can sue you for any reason, you, they could be wrong, you could be right, it doesn't matter, you need to have the insurance online so you can protect yourself. So, to instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups, go to imbroker.com slash twist, E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist, and while you're there, get an extra 10% off by using the offer code twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing program. Um... Seven, you know, back to Brian Armstrong's tweet. In fact, I would say it was probably the most positive reaction I've gotten for any change I've made in the history of the company, which is saying something. How could something be so negative in the press, but turn out to be so incredibly positive with every other stakeholder? I can answer that for you. Um, the press is broken up into four buckets. I'll explain that in a moment. But essentially, one of those buckets is, um, two of those buckets are particularly enamored with any kind of a fight because it drives page views, it drives likes, and it drives subscribers. So I can tell you, the reason why it's so positive inside your company and the press is so negative is because not all the press is using your story, Brian, um, in order to get page views. The two buckets that are, are the content farming group. So content farming group would probably be a large portion of BuzzFeed, but not all because they have also some really great investigative journalists. But you know, the folks who are just trying to, you know, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, you know, doing link baiting stuff, mm. they're going to do content farming on this story and spin it however, whatever their spin will be determined by what will get them the most clicks. And they actually test this by using Facebook and they'll test five different headlines for the story, which everyone gets the most clicks, gets the most reaction, gets the uh, headline. And they'll do that and they have separate writers to write the headlines. Who are good at writing controversial headlines they get you to click those content optimizing folks do not care about the truth they care about the clicks obviously if it's controversial um and they don't care if it's the truth they care if it gets clicks that's one bucket the next bucket is the virtue signaling press or the agenda driven press the advocacy driven press and advocacy press has always existed but it's it's very much in fashion now uh, and it, it is becoming a larger and larger percentage of writers so if you look at the new york times they're hiring writers specifically who are anti-tech and who want to hold tech accountable. Literally, the New York Times has predetermined that tech is guilty and is making hiring decisions based 
on who is the most anti-tech. Let that sink in. The New York Times, the paper of record, is hiring the most anti-tech journalists they can find. And they're explicitly saying, we're hiring journalists because they have a proven track record in being anti-tech and holding tech accountable. And we need to do that. Um, The most cynical view of that would be the Bology take, which is they see technology companies as their adversary, like Facebook and Google are taking all their money uh, and their attention. And therefore, they are attacking them and using their journalistic firepower to attack. And um, that feels uh, pretty smarmy, but I don't think that's exactly accurate. So the other two pieces of the press in buckets would be the direct to consume, you know, the subjects going direct, like myself and all in and, you know, CEOs who have big followings on Twitter or Andreessen Horowitz, you know, failed content attempts that they copied from my playbook, and they just did poorly, and they don't get any attention for. Um, and then finally, there's the old school press, you know, Kara Swisher, uh, Cade Metz, you know, just the old school press who just want to tell the stories as accurately as they can. And uh, remember, I interviewed Cade on episode 1187. And his talk was uh, his, he talked with me about that Slate Star Codex article. Um, I asked him who wrote the headline and for the article Silicon Valley Safe Space. And he was, you know, he kind of indicated that he did it in collaboration, he didn't want to throw the person under the bus. But you you could kind of infer that he would have preferred he wrote it, uh, but basically it was an editor. And, you know, the the headline really didn't match his article, which then leads to, you know, this whole sort of feeling of animosity between the tech world and press. And listen, tech has, because of Facebook and other bad behavior, tech does need to be held accountable. And we've seen great moments in investigative journalism about tech companies, whether it's John Carreyrou, old school journalist with Theranos, or the Wall Street Journal with the Facebook paper. So you can't paint the press with one brush. It really is four specific buckets. And there's the content bucket, just content optimization. They're ruthless, ruthless, horrible people who just want to get clicks. They don't care about the truth. Uh, then you have the advocacy, which, you know, say what you will about them, but they are advocating for their position. Some of them are explicit about it, like Fox News and MSNBC. Uh, other ones are kind of not as explicit about it, like the New York Times, who are kind of saying that they're the paper of record while they're actually they've picked a side basically. Uh, and consumers are hashing that out. So anyway, enough on that. Um, let's keep going back to Brian's tweet storm. Nine, the biggest lesson I took away from the whole ordeal is that if you believe something is the right path, it's worth speaking about even if it's controversial. My take on this is uh, number one, uh, people should be allowed to talk about whatever they want. Uh, they should have whatever positions they want. And um the founders of a company should decide if they want to have a company that embraces that debate or having debates at all or the founders of the company can decide they want to have no debates in my small company i love having debates i can handle it it's never gotten out of control i am a strong presence within the company i've hired and had a you know great i think i've done a great job building the specific culture that i want um and if people don't fit into that culture, they're not going to stay here. Now, these are under 20 person companies inside.com and launch. So it's a lot easier for me to do that. Once a company gets big, you know, you start to lose that ability to for me to have a personal touch with each employee, each team member. So I think that this is going to be the future of companies. And if you want to work at a company that has a specific mission, pick that, you know, if the New York Times position is tech is bad or largely bad, and we need to hold them accountable, well, they're great, then people who want to take that position go there. If other journalists want to say, I'm going to try to find the truth, and I'm not going to come to it with a predetermined position, then I will go work for the Economist or Financial Times or, you know, whatever other publication is trying to, you know, just be uh, objective, right? Uh, so you can pick where you want to go. If you're an advocate, you can go work for MSNBC or Fox or Jacobin? Is that how you pronounce it? Jacobin? Um, anyway, I, 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 I love, love listening to Jacobin, you know, writers. Uh, I love motherboard and vice writers. I love to understand their positions. I don't agree with them. Um, but I love that those publications exist and I can take their, then there's like the kids from, uh, Jacobin and whatnot do like this machine kills. I listen to that podcast and they, they pick good stories. I mean, they're completely uninformed in their positions because they're so anti-tech or so anti-capitalism that they have this crazy blind spot. But I like hearing their wacky positions because 
um, they do alert you to how some people think about the world. And that's good. I like to be more informed. Um, and they pick good topics, right? They find things uh, that are on the margins, uh, really interesting. In fact, the way I was alerted to the Amazon driver controversy was Jacobin, Jacobin, whatever they, the socialist magazine is, uh, and this machine kills, they, they alerted me to this article about drivers being upset about being under uh, cameras to watch their uh, driving ability. And, uh, you know, so kudos on, you know, really finding the edge cases or the bubbling up stories. Uh, does any public company have a more dynamic founder with the authority than Coinbase's does right now is a question that uh, has come up here uh, in my notes from our audience. And so, yeah, I would say, you know, Tesla, uh, Brian Armstrong, uh, maybe Jack uh, at Twitter and Square. I'm trying to think of iconoclastic leaders who do not care about what other people think about them and are brave. Uh, Benioff, Michael Dell. Uh, Jeff Lawson is from Twilio is pretty outspoken too. Yeah. Um, and he takes the other side of this, right? So uh, they're out there. Um, it's kind of hard to be very uh, candid when you're a public company because you're responsible for the share price and the shareholders and the stakeholders. So you don't want to be too cavalier. But I think Brian has absolutely walked the line here. And I think this is part of the uh, reaction to perhaps the hysterical or extreme culture we've been in, whether it's the Trump um, trolling or the hysterical left uh, and socialists. I think the world is rejecting those two groups of people and saying let's get to let's get back to some more moderate uh way to have discourse and i'm very proud of all in um because i feel like being the creator of that podcast uh, and bringing all those guys together um has been my way of saying hey let's see if we could have a reasonable discussion and it's why on that podcast you don't hear me giving my takes that much I consider myself the point guard or the uh conductor of a great conversation so i've been really trying to you know, develop a new muscle for myself, which is, can I be the greatest moderator of hard conversations and keep the conversations moving, keep the conversations fun, uh, get a couple of laughs in, and then maybe ask basic questions on behalf of the audience. So some people are like, J. Kyle is really stupid. He's asking stupid questions on all in. And I'm like, when I ask a question that's very basic to a bestie, do you think it's because I don't know the answer? Really? Or do you think I might be asking that very basic question for the benefit of the guest or the bestie and the audience so when i ask something very basic like i asked balaji like well when you say that the blockchain is better for truth and it's immutable and that's the strength what if somebody puts your social security number on it or a lie how is that mitigated now i know the answers i've researched that i've discussed it a hundred times with very qualified people in the truth business and fact checking business and also in crypto i'm asking that question to start a dialogue so for people who are not understanding why I ask very basic questions on this podcast or the other. It's called the job of the moderator, the interviewer. So um, hats off to Brian Armstrong. Uh, I think he has set the new standard. I think every company is going to take this position. Even the woke companies are going to start taking this position, which is going to be, if you want to talk about it with your employees, do it on your time. Um, here's the mission of the company. Stay focused on the mission. And I think they're going to take my advice, which is delete the random channel on your Slack immediately it should not be there by default in a business setting it only gives people this outlet and pressure cooker to put stuff that's going to cause suffering down the line and misunderstanding no political discourse no social discourse on the slack channels if you want to do that do it in person do it on a, a zoom call and you'll get a much different result all right that's my take and uh, i hope you enjoyed it if you have comments come to this week in startups.com slack and you can talk about it in our slack channel or you can uh, interact with us on Twitter. All right, question that came in. If you're a retail investor and you see an iconoclastic, outspoken, uh, very um, mission-driven founder like Brian Armstrong, does that make you more likely to buy the stock or less likely? Of course, it makes you more likely. Uh, unless their position is absolutely deranged and sociopathic, which I'm trying to think of an example here, maybe Nikola uh, or one of those companies where you have like a certain amount of confidence that is unearned um sure yeah that might that might be a sell signal but i think uniformly founder authority in a in a publicly traded company is magical i don't think that you know tesla as an example could have done something like the cyber truck 
if Elon wasn't the CEO. You, you can only make a bold choice like that if you're the founder. I think Apple can't make bold choices anymore because Steve Jobs isn't there to say, you know what, we're doing this. We're going to build a car or you know what, we're going to buy this company. The founder authority is absolutely critical for bold decisions. The reason why Facebook was able to buy WhatsApp and Instagram was because Zuckerberg had control of that uh, board. He had all the voting power. He informed the board he was doing it. That's how the story goes on those two acquisitions. Any other company that was going to acquire those companies would have had a dialogue and research and consultants, you know, uh, debate it with, you know, Jack was and Evan and whatever DeCostolo were going to buy uh, Instagram as an example at Twitter. The reason they weren't able to buy it was because they had to have a discussion about it. And Zuck just took Kevin's session for a walk, explained why this was a great idea um, and, and put the number down. And the same thing with WhatsApp founders. So. You you do want to look for founder authority. You do want to look for bold, empowered founders with a point of view. So, uh, yeah, that's my answer to your question. Before we get into the ad, I just want you to go to linkedin.com slash twist right now, linkedin.com slash twist and post your first job for free. What a deal. Incredibly supportive uh, of you, LinkedIn, to give that free job to our listeners. And you know, small business owners are busier than ever. The time spent searching for and interviewing wrong candidates, let's face it, bad candidates, takes away from growing your business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster. And they're giving you your first job for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people, then quickly filter and prioritize who you want to interview and eventually hire. We love LinkedIn jobs at launch and inside. And in 2021, we've hired a third producer, a curriculum designer, and a few more researchers. And we're doing all that hiring on LinkedIn. We love it. And we're still hiring. So here is your call to action one more time. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the right candidates worth interviewing faster. Every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn. So post your job for free, free F R E E at linkedin.com slash twist. That's right, linkedin.com slash twist to post your first job for free. Terms and conditions do apply because they're giving you something for free. All right, let's get back to this amazing episode. Okay, everybody, we all know that severe weather conditions, global warming, whichever you prefer, uh, and we'll, we'll keep this from getting too political is wreaking havoc uh, on the world. And having homes insured is becoming a key vector in dealing with extreme weather. We have people who are buying houses all over Tahoe. They had a huge boom during the COVID. And sadly, uh, the wildfires here in Northern California started up again, creating absolute chaos. Uh, we have people in Louisiana and Florida dealing with floods, and there must be uh, ways to ensure these products and keep people safe at the same time while um, really dealing with this issue in a big picture, uh, which means probably fire uh, materials, uh, fire retardant materials and buildings, building houses on stilts, all kinds of uh, new building materials. And of course, addressing climate change by sequestering carbon, building more nuclear reactors, working on the Hail Mary of fusion reactors, which is getting there could be in the next decade or two, we uh, stop talking about energy as an issue and start moving on to the next issue with me today to discuss his startup kettle, uh, which is a reinsurance company that uses data data and models to create better priced policies for forest fires specifically is Nat Manning. Welcome to the program, Nat. Thanks for having me. Nat, how many people are living in fire zones today? How many homes are at risk every year here in America? So there are, there are two ways to go about this. So there are about 14 million structures in California. Okay. Last year was uh, the third worst year in history um, for fires in 2020. Uh, and about 4 million acres burned down out of about 100 million uh, across the states, so or about 4%. Four uh, percent of the state of, of the forest land in our state, not the state's total land mass, but the forest of the state. Actually, no, the the whole state is a, is about a hundred and, and change. 
Um, so about 4% of the total acres of the state burned down. But there's there's more to this. So it seems like it, it, is, it's, it is a big number. Right? That is um, a, no, wait a second. That seems like a ginormous number. Mm-hmm. What was it 20 years ago? What would we typically see in a fire season? Okay, so that's the, that's the right question. So there are yeah. two answers to that. So 20 years ago, we're looking at a couple percent, less than a percent. But a hundred years ago, 150, 100 years ago, through kind of prehistoric ages, that number was actually like seven to ten. Ah, um, and so we, you know, showed up in as you know, uh, in in our in in culture as humans, and we and we you know, started building everywhere, and we said, hey, we're going to suppress these fires. I don't want them to burn things down. It makes sense, right? Right. A uh, lot of different stuff goes into this, but essentially, um. It is very healthy for fires to burn, but the difference is now you've got these huge fires uh, that are that are going everywhere uh, and are getting totally out of control. Whereas before, that seven to eleven percent is actually many, many, many smaller fires burning smaller uh. amounts and then going out, and they don't get that dangerous and they don't get that uh, that destructive. And so, while the number was bigger, the type of fire um, and the destruction of that fire uh, was was different. Uh, and, so that's and, worth pausing on for a second. You have um, a quantity and a qualitative change occurring at the same time, which as a, as a, as a, uh, a man of statistics, uh, I'm assuming running an insurance company yeah. and trying to assess risk, um, it's very hard to have a discussion with this in a very politicized environment because you could pick different statistics here. The seven to ten percent statistic, the one percent or less statistic from twenty years ago, and the four percent now, and play all kinds of games with that. That's right. But what is even harder to have a reasonable conversation with about is that qualitatively, what you're saying is the fires today are much more intense, localized, and bigger as opposed to spread out in little pockets. That's right. Did am I accurate in understanding your? Um, assessment of the situation. That's exactly right. Um, so, you know, give you a couple other numbers to put that in context, right? Like back to a hundred plus years ago, you know, we didn't have humans running around putting out fires. So there's actually, there's actually about 10,000 fires a year in California. Hmm. Um, 14 of them last year caused 99% of the damage. Ah, so we actually put most of the fires out, right? Got it. And then what happens is you have one to 10 that get totally out of control and create these mega fire situations. Whereas before, you know, a large portion of those 10,000 um, would kind of burn and then burn mm-hmm. themselves out and naturally stop because they'd hit a stream. The forests, you know, had or, uh, were better managed um, by, by, by Maybe the wind by died down. I mean, it does seem like down. wind is, am I correct as a uh, neophyte in this area that these high winds seem to determine the intensity of these? They're a huge factor. Huge factor. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a huge factor. Um, and, and then the other one, um, you know, there, there are two parts to this. There's the reality. You can't deny that the, there's less rain than there used to be. The season's longer and it's hotter than it used to be. Okay. You know, I, I don't, we don't need to get into why that is and argue about it. It's just true. Um, yes. And the fact <laughs> is it's hotter. Yes. And it's drier. And if it's hotter and drier, that creates more kindling. Exactly. It creates fuel. Exactly. Which is fuel. And from my Boy Scout days, you know, I we learned pretty clearly the small amount, the smaller these fibers, the smaller the twigs, you would start with small dry things and then build up to bigger logs. It's not that we have bigger logs everywhere. It's that we got a bunch of this small debris everywhere, which is just absolutely perfect. For starting these fires up so we're basically creating massive massive amounts of kindling which yep. led to this uh cavalier uh, statement uh by uh one of our former elected officials that we need to rake things up more like norway or other places mm. which seemed cavalier and silly but also seemed to ring true that keeping some of this kindling and and cleaning up you know the uh underbelly the 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 uh the ground under trees would help because we know that that is factually correct is it factually correct that if we swept up i mean it's a stupid way to say it but if there was more deep what, what do you call the act of taking the kindling out or 
or waking up? Is there a term in the industry for that? And is that actually a viable thing? It is. Uh, it's called forest thinning. Uh, thinning and then the it. other thing is uh, controlled burns. Um, and that's exactly right. I mean, like, so look, like the weather, that's one factor of it. it there are things we could have and hopefully possibly could have done decades ago or, or will continue to do now. You mentioned, you know, energy and fusion, like these things long term will help, uh, you know, change and, and uh, these weather patterns and, and hopefully kind of bring some stasis back. It, that's going to take a while. And in the meantime, you've got forest management and you've got uh, what, what do you do with the fuel that's there today? And, and what you can do is forest thinning uh, and, and, and controlled burns, which are both proven methods. Uh, it just takes a, I mean, and we don't get, but the long and short is we should put a lot of people to work doing that and it would help. In California, how many people would we need to thin the forests to take the 4% of the state being on uh, fire to say 2%? Or is it even possible through thinning and control burns to do that? Uh, I'm not even for a no specific exact, number so of people, I'm, but yeah. like if we had a ballpark, are we talking about thousands of people full time, tens of thousands? I think it's tens of thousands. And, okay. But I, I have seen some analysis from a numbers point of view. So mm -hmm. I saw um uh 10 billion as a number that we should start spending annually to do wow. this the other thing to know though so there's part of this is what's it's california's responsibility 60 percent of the land in california is owned by the federal government wow so the other problem is that you've got land and forests that are owned by local communities you got land and forest that's owned by the state and you got land and forest that's owned by the federal government and wow. all you know all of those require different political actions um the federal government is, is also very busy, I would say. So yes. if the federal government is busy and they own land here, they're kind of like an out-of-state resident that turns over every four to eight years. They, they're not on the ground. Would this not be an interesting moment to think, and listen, I'm a capitalist who thinks about uh, economics, and, and you are as well. Um, would it not be time to rethink their ownership of that land and stewardship of it and say, hey, maybe... The federal government can own it, but we're going to give a hundred year lease on this section of it mm. to the federal government and say, hey, this should be developed in some way that creates revenue that would then result in this being cleared. So if the if we created a park or we rented out part of it or we developed part of it with homes, I know people are anti-development in the state, generally speaking, but if there was some way to create a revenue stream for that plot of land whether it was through tourism or homes or something um it could even be bike trails whatever there's some way to create mm. revenue stream create some revenue from it have the local folks manage it then there would be some ownership therefore somebody would actually be responsible for doing the thinning and it would be an expense on their p l that's certainly um yeah it's certainly possible and and you know one of the answers to that was you know the 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 park national park solution in california like go back like that's what yosemite is right mm -hmm. like it's a revenue generating amazing resource that 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 is you know federally owned zendesk is the go-to tool for customer support we all know that they also offer a suite of tools designed to remove the difficulties of sales software so Get Zendesk suite of sales tools plus their industry-leading support software for free for six months as part of Zendesk for startups. I'll show you how to do that in just a moment. But I want you to know that you'll also get access to Zendesk's community of startup founders and partners, and they'll even offer dedicated onboarding guidance and support. You know Steezy Studios, it's one of our portfolio companies, and they sell software to learn how to dance. Hundreds of thousands of people are using that software, and they want to make sure everybody has a great experience with the software, obviously. So through a combination of Zendesk Explorer and their ticket tagging system, Steezy is able to track which features their users are most excited about and then relay that to the product team. So they're using customer support to make the product better. So for Steezy, Zendesk creates a positive relationship with their members and empowers them to contribute to Steezy's growth in return for some awesome dance moves. Get six months of Zendesk for startups free at zendesk.com twist. To qualify, you must have under 50 employees. That's reasonable. And you must have raised a Series A or below and be a new Zendesk customer. A couple of conditions there because they're giving you something really valuable for free. Six months of Zendesk for startups. Start building the best customer experiences at 
zendesk.com slash twist. Yosemite must be massively profitable because you can't get a tent you there. You can't in the get summer. in, right? You can't get in. <laughs> so they're sold out and they could just keep raising the rates. So why not make Yosemite, why not add five Yosemites, make the prices even more expensive and then use it to then. And then of course you can give people, you know, lower price things to make sure everybody can use it. But you could make some premium products there to 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 drive revenue streams because I it seems to so, me that there is a who's going to pay for it kind of moment going on here and finger pointing is that correct as well? That is, but I'm so I'm going to transition this. So yes, one of please. the other solutions, yeah. So government for sure, but the other one and one of the reasons why I I love insurance is that the incentives all become aligned, right? Mm-hmm. So if I run an insurance company, it's you know just writing insurance against wildfire like i do um now it is entirely in my interest to invest any profits i have into mitigation mm-hmm. um and so like one of the things with us as an insurance company is we make all of our insights uh one of the things we're, we make all of our insights available uh mm-hmm. for free to anyone right. that's working in mitigation whether that's government whether that's uh folks doing controlled burns and forest thinning we say hey we'll tell you exactly everything we know uh, because if you can go out there and use that to do a better job doing defensible space, do a better job forest thinning, then great. That reduces our risk, right? Mm-hmm. And and who knows long term? Like maybe we're we get growing big enough, like uh, like the old Berkshire Hathaway flywheel, right? Like we can start taking that. Uh, yeah. So let's those profits. Let's, let's describe what Kettle does here. You're trying to use big data to predict where these fires are going to be, and then do better insurance. For individuals, for the state, for who? Uh, so we we operate at the reinsurance level. Uh, Explain that so what that is to people who don't know. Happily, um, uh, reinsurance uh, is insurance for insurance companies. And so, before your eyes all glaze over, um, yep. what that what that essentially means, right, is like uh, it's insurance companies cover anything that could go wrong with your house. Say so you you have home insurance, your roof leaks, your you get robbed. They pay all these these things. What they aren't set up financially to manage and what they go buy insurance for are uh, when a fire comes through and wipes out 500 homes at once. Mm. They buy an insurance policy the same way that you have an insurance policy. You're like, okay, I fixed my, you know, I'll call an electrician when there's a small thing and over here, but then when it's a big thing, I'm going to call my insurance company. Mm. They do the same thing. Uh, and so what reinsurance is, is, is really the business of insuring against catastrophes, Got it. Uh, which are being exacerbated by climate change. There's been a 3x so, uh, increase in billion dollar uh, events in the last decade in America. So if I were to reflect that back to you, the correct way to think about this is I'm an insurance company. I've ins- done my job. I've got everybody to buy their insurance. Right. Now I'm looking at it going, holy cow. This group of people, the subset of people I sold it to are in a high risk zone. If some, you know, once in a hundred year flood comes or once in a hundred year fire comes, I'm insolvent, right? I have not done my actuary tables, or I don't know what you would call that act in insurance of predicting for the worst case scenario. But said another way, these insurance companies are not designed to withstand the worst case scenario, are they? That that's right. And and, and well, and they're not designed like from that's the plan, right? And so uh, the regulators say, hey, you need to offload this tail risk or or sell or mm-hmm. buy reinsurance essentially for um, for that one in a hundred year event. And then mm. uh, and then they go to the reinsurance world and, and do just that. Uh, as you've studied this, what data sources seem to be the best predictors of where these fires will happen next? Because my understanding is of these 10,000 fires that occur, some number of them are dipshit starting fires, you know, at a campground or doing something really stupid. In other words, you know, arson or accidental fires. I don't know what percentage that equals, but it does seem like we keep getting stories of like, hey, by the way, that fire was caused by this person. Yeah. Um, So tell us if that is actually true, or it's just, um, it's so memorable when it does happen that we overestimate it. And then how on earth could you predict something that's occurring by an accidental person creating a fire or at worst, an arsonist doing this for some deranged sociopathic reason? Yeah. So we we run two models. One is uh, the ignition model, trying to predict where fires will start, and then okay. the second is a spread model, trying to understand how fires spread. And uh, 
the two most important data sources into that are geospatial data, um, essentially satellite imagery. Uh, and what's incredible over the last 30 years, right, is we now uh, have 30 years of incredible satellite data from NASA and then increasingly from private companies putting it up. It's uh, it's a cool time to be alive. Um, mm. And then the second is weather data. So mm. same thing. Uh, NOAA um, has been collecting weather data for years, making it available. And those two things can give you a lot. Uh, and then we're writing machine learning models, right, that are looking at what's happening, right? And they, so you're exactly right. Like there are all these different factors that are, when they align in the wrong direction, they become one of those 14 fires, right? Mm. And so if you think about it, it's what we've talked about, right? Okay. Uh, well, first off, a lot of fires start right along uh, a road, right? And, and you look at the satellite imagery is looking at this gray pixelated straight line and, and it doesn't know, but the model is like, oh, it, fires consistently start next to these things. Why? Because there's electricity lines there, people throw trash out of the windows, et cigarettes, cigarettes, et cetera. Um, now, most of the time that fire goes out because it's pretty, you know, good chance the fire uh, station can get to it. But if you have something happen and you have the winds blowing at 90 miles an hour, you know, to the east, uh, and then you have many miles of dried out trees with no access to them, uh, suddenly the model's going, wow, this looks exactly like mm. all those other fires that turned those 14 fires last year that turned into really bad events versus one that happens and it's right next to a walmart parking lot and they go oh that fire started but then it you know it went out pretty quickly because it ran into this big fire break uh is how the model's like looking at it right and so silent imagery and and weather data is is really the main two uh that, that make a tremendous difference now six of seven of the top largest wildfires ever measured in california were in the last 13 months yeah, so it is getting much worse. And I think saying much worse or dramatically worse would probably be an understatement of what we've just witnessed in California. Is it going to get much worse and dramatically worse than this already dramatically worse year based on the information that you've learned from satellites, et cetera? In other words, um, should we be terrified right now? Because it felt terrifying the last two years here as a Bay Area resident. I'm nowhere near the fire zone. But yeah. watching three weeks of not being able to leave your house during a pandemic because the air turned orange in the Bay Area um, just made me and many other people think we need to have an escape plan, not for fire in the Bay Area. Um, thankfully, it's harder for the fire to get here um it's so developed but we need to have an escape plan to get out of the smoke yeah is it going to get dramatically worse and how bad was this year am i overreacting okay these are the right questions so as i mentioned earlier 14 million uh structures in this last year was third worst year in history actually one of the in recent history like one of the worst from acres burned we said four percent right four million but actually only eleven thousand. 460 stick stru structures burned down. And that's really, you know, I, that's terrible. Like that's 11,000 families and businesses that uh, lost. Yeah. But again, out of 14 million. So okay. the, the, while it feels like the whole state is burning down, actually less than 0.1% is actually burning down a year, right? Of In the structures, worst, if we look at structures. structures. So this is why statistics and metrics and having a thoughtful conversation on this is important. So while six of the seven largest fire fires ever measured will last 13 months, um, the campfire yeah. was much more destructive. That one, that 2018 yeah. one in Napa area. That's right. We lost. Exactly. Almost, did we lose 20,000 in that it one? It was 20,000 in those two. Yeah. In that year and 20,000 the year before actually as well. So those were the got two it. worst from structures, even though half as many acres burned down in that year. Right. It just got the, it got an area where people were living. Yes. Should people be allowed, in your estimation, as somebody who has skin in the game in a massive way, should people be allowed to build or rebuild homes, I should say, in places where we've had dramatic fire activity? Yes or no? It should be highly discouraged. Okay. How do you practically get people who are unable to build homes because of the NIMBY red tape 
of uh, California to not take the opportunity to rebuild a home where they're legally allowed to rebuild it. And there are no homes available. We're in a massive housing crisis. You have to think that if we weren't in such a housing crisis and didn't live in such a goddamn NIMBY state, that people would not feel the need to rebuild in these zones because they would be allowed to build in other places. Does the NIMBYism and red tape of the state exacerbate the problem? People should be able to build in places where there are good jobs and uh, low risk of climate change. Got it. That would be a good right. thing. Yeah. So you're being diplomatic. The The fact is we're not allowed to build in the places that are safe. And if you if your home burned down in the campfire fire, because you had that as a previous lot, my understanding, I could be wrong. Somebody will fact check me if I am producers, hopefully. Um, you could just rebuild on that. There is because it was your home and you have insurance and you're entitled to that lot. So it is a lot easier to rebuild in the fire zone than it is to rebuild in a non-fire zone in California. That's true. And, and one of the things that's happening, um, well, I will say one of the things that does happen because it's financial is that they, you do have a, a system where people are, are, are losing their home insurance. So a lot of those folks might be able to rebuild, but this has changed in the last couple of years. Um, they might not be able to get insurance for that home anymore. Um, and that honestly is maybe a good thing if it's in a really high good risk thing. area, right? Thing. Yeah. You know, like what it depends exactly, you know, yeah. once a place is burned, it also means it's not going to burn for a little while, but it, things grow back. Like I'm, we won't get into, but like eucalyptus, for instance, is not in, uh, natural to the state. It grows extremely fast and it explodes, right? Whereas redwoods, uh. um, they store moisture. And actually are made to uh, withstand fires. So there's just some, that's a long-term solution. But, uh, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd put a lot of redwoods back and get rid of those eucalyptus. Uh, the, you know, so, but what's happening, right? So those people can't rebuild. Uh, they are, well, they can't get insurance maybe. So they maybe they decide not to rebuild there. Maybe, maybe they can and they do. But there's such panic in the insurance world that now a lot of people can't get their insurance, home insurance. Mm. Who actually aren't in that risky of an area like i'm in the bay area right i'm up uh in the hills in, in the east bay um and i and i lost my insurance i got dropped this year because of wildfire you know wow. great irony right and so what does um, that mean practically for you you basically are responsible if that house burns down i was able to get additional insurance i obviously know some people um <laughs> but uh but in that interim yeah yeah wow. I, well actually what i would have had to do is i would have had to go to the fair plan uh, which is the government sponsored like high catastrophe plan. Um, mm. And they're, they're required to, to provide insurance. Um, but it's a, not a good policy, right? It's like you get health insurance when you already have cancer. Um, Got as it. An so it's very, it pays very little. And it, it pays, costs it's a lot. Capped at th yeah, it pays little. It costs a lot. You know, there's, uh, it's not an ideal structure. But you also, they're say, basically saying you're not insurable here. The thing that's happening, right, as I talked about earlier, that that 0.1% of the state actually burns down is that tons of people are getting kicked onto the fair plan who who really aren't in that risky of an area. Um, I, and there are some people who absolutely should be and, and we should not be building there because they're in super high risk areas, right? Like for us, our, you know, our underwriting is we don't we don't ensure in the top 25% of areas. But what's happened is there's been such panic uh, in in the insurance markets that the reinsurers have have pulled out, right? And it's very similar to post 2008, right? And you had all these people go, I, I, I'm not going to write loans anymore. No way. And then the tech world realized and they came in and they said, you know, that that there's actually a lot of like, I'm happy to write a student loan to someone that graduates from Harvard or MIT. Like that seems like a good bet. Um, and then you have companies like SoFi be able to move into this space when when everyone sort of panicked and moved back. And that's that's essentially where we are today, where you say the supply has dried up. Everyone's like, I'm not the supply of reinsurance. I'm not going to insure, um, which means the price has spiked. And what we come in and do and we say, hey, we're going to apply, apply a much more analytical machine learning based model to this and be able to bring some stability back to the market uh, and be able to, to hopefully you know, be able to help people get their, their insurance, you know, shore up the 
the real estate market of California. Is um, the, are the insurance uh, companies for fire insurance specifically looking at the foliage around a house today and saying, listen, you have Italian cypresses, those things are matchsticks, and you put them like a row of matchsticks around your house because you love Tuscany? Yeah. <laughs> Because like I was in Tuscany and I was looking at them and my friend said, yeah, you can't have those in Italy. You can't have those Italian Cyprus in Los Angeles anymore or some places. Um, can't get insurance at your house. If you have them, you got to cut them down. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what somebody told me. Uh, it is true. Yeah. Um, there, there is, so um, there, are, there are two ways, two things I would say about this to be a little uh, nuanced. One is totally true and yes there are a lot of uh services and, and and underwriters now who are looking at that they're like hey you have these you know, italian cypresses you have trees that are hanging right over your roof um this is no longer insurable um and it's called defensible space or home hardening this kind of stuff and that's that is important work at the same time um the it's looking at it from a really micro point of view and the truth is if you are in the parameter of one of those 14 fires inside, it does not make a difference whether or not you have Italian cypresses or not, right? Whether you have a tree that's five feet from your house or 15 feet from your house. It, what, what really matters there is that big picture macro level weather and, and geospatial data. In the, the, fit, in the 10 miles per edge of the perimeter of a fire where these, uh, these embers are being thrown, it makes a huge difference because that ember hits your house and hits that Italian cypress. Bad news. The house next door might have gone done through the smart work of closing up their vents, not putting Italian cypress in, and that one's not going to burn down. It's going to have enough time for the fire. What does the closing of the vents do? I've heard that uh, before. It, yeah, it's it's so that embers don't get inside your house uh, ah. and burn up. You know all those uh, old Amazon boxes that you have stored in your basement, basically. Um, so something as simple as that can change the fate of one of these fires and structures. Uh, I had this idea that we could take the blankets that people use to put out car fires or things and throw them over a house. Um, I found out that during this wildfire, somebody actually wrapped their home yeah. in a fire blanket and it worked and they wrapped the biggest redwood tree in the Bay Area got wrapped with a, a fire retardant blanket. Um, where are we at with because I've been looking for a startup to fund based on that idea. H have you seen anybody come up with a bulletproof solution for, you know, a home not getting put on fire and, and how, you know, for $10,000 per home, couldn't we just put blankets around them or have a blanket system that dropped over them? Or there are all these gels and stuff that people use to put out fires or protect stuff. Why don't we require or incentivize putting a tank on the top of these homes with the gel? When it hits a certain fire temperature, instead of just putting on water, which obviously gets cut because they're using yep. it to cut fires and they have to fly it in with helicopters and planes because there's so little water pressure, you could just drop that goo over the home and keep it from going on fire. Why are those things not being deployed? Or are they? Uh, there's a lot of insight and research going into this. You know, another one to add to you is that, uh, that I saw a startup doing is that uh, dry ice actually uh, just sucks up fire. Like it just, what? it's amazing. Um, and so someone's trying to figure out how do I deploy these in drones? And oh, will you, you introduce know, me to them? Don't say their name on the program. I don't want anybody to front run that. Will you, will you introduce me to them? Yeah, I'll find, uh, I'll, we'll make that connection. Um, I am it's cool. stoked. Um, so the idea would be if you put the dry ice around a building where you had some sort of dry ice system where you made a wall of dry ice, a wall of dry ice, like the white wall, like the, like the, <laughs> Like the ice wall in Game of Thrones could stop right, yeah. the, 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 the red walkers in this case, the fire. In the red, exactly. Wow, that um, is yeah, fascinating. Possible. Yeah, there's some cool stuff going on there. And, and, it's, and it's incredibly important. And to your point about the other ones, you know, yes, there, there are a lot of good mitigation things that could be done from a household perspective. The blanket one, I love that. The wrapping the house and things like that. And that's what you can kind of do as, a, as an individual, right? Hmm. And then I just want to like clarify, at, at the same time, that forest thinning and uh and controlled burn at a at a statewide level would make a tremendous difference mm. uh and and really because the other thing with that is not only does it say okay now we're no longer there's going to be less fires and there'll be less dramatic fires but as we talked about earlier it actually reduces the smoke mm. right and so as we're saying oh, is actually the risk of the fire hitting your house is is still you know only point less than 0.1 percent a year burned down However, uh, you know, as a Californian, like that smoke is awful. 
Um, and we had 200, I don't know where it was by you, but we had 200, 300 particle days yeah. on the peninsula pretty regularly. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, you know, this is, and then you look at poor Tahoe, you know, it was an incredible jewel of California, even the jewel of the United States. Yep. And, you know, the, the, the fire is going to hit there eventually, right? I mean, it's just an inevitability in your mind. It's a high probability. You have, you're, you're, you're doing the metrics. <laughs> I mean, tell it to a straight. Chances Tahoe gets hit by one of these fires in the next decade. Certain? 50%? Uh, so, two, two answers to this. So, it is a high-risk area, for sure. Um, it is a, a, you know, a, a very high-risk area. At the same time, what we saw this last year, right, is that, uh, and you see this in Napa and Sonoma as well, um, the fires get very close. And, and what happens is, you know, we, as I said, we're actually... Firefighters are incredible and, and we're getting pretty good at this. And so we put up just like that final wall, like you were talking about the, the wall of ice, like we're putting it in and we're not going to let South Lake Tahoe get hit. Or you look at the fires in Napa and Snowman, right? Like they have gotten right next to the 29, like right, like they're just come right to the edge and they're, they're taking out wine. But like the, the main, the homes, we, we managed to stop them just in time. Wow. So it's hard to say. Um, is the answer is you, we're going to have to fight fires. All the time in Tahoe and uh, wow. and and the wine in wine country and in South you know in South California too until we can get these bigger fires under control like I talked about. Um, uh, but you know, people are are pretty resourceful and incredible, and they're doing a great job of, of stopping it before it really hits those those major towns. But then you have other examples, right? You have Paradise where it it doesn't, right? And mm -hmm. every once in a while it. It comes right through, or that big and that corner has to do of Santa with the winds, Rosa, right? That's our it's that's so our hard. wind issue. Is that's a you, wind issue? No, exactly. no, no, no. It doesn't matter the bravery or the quantity of these firefighters. Yeah. If that wind is up, they they can't stop the wind. Nobody. It's so hard. Yeah. So here, just as we wrap up here, uh, and thank you for doing the work you're doing and being such a great guest and explaining all this. There is um, uh, fire roads uh, very naturally uh, stop these fires. Um, we're correct in that, yes. And that's why yeah. they're created and, and they're, they're created. highly, highly, highly effective is my understanding. And they tend to be one or two lanes wide and that's enough for them to be effective. Am I correct there? It makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like if it's 90 mile an hour Santa Ana winds and the fires kind of gone, it's yep. like it's not going to make a difference. But when that's, these are some of the main reasons why, you know, the vast majority of those 10,000 fires do get put out before they cause major damage. So, I wonder if we we haven't wanted to create more roads through our forest land because we don't want animals to be run over by trucks um, and we don't want to spoil it. That being said, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of animals dying in these fires uh, and a lot less would die if we had more um, fire access. roads built and yeah. more access roads built. So should we not go on a major project? Because I saw people in Napa doing this during that during the last couple of years. People were just taking their own bulldozers and just driving straight through the forest and just knocking down everything in sight and creating their own fire roads. They were not asking permission. They were just, you know, they went rogue. If we created, you know, our Appalachian Trail, as it were, or other, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, type of roads, we could create this incredible hiking trail, biking trail that could be used by everybody. Don't put trucks on it. Just let it be used by humans to travel over a lot of these mountains that are otherwise inaccessible. It would be a win-win and you could, you know, charge for use of them or make them uh, uh, in some way like a, like a national park, you know, people want to go take their mountain biking or camp along them. It, it could be extraordinary like we did with the High Line in New York. So yeah. do you think there's this opportunity to make the greatest bike? path slash you know uh fire road in the world because the fire roads in california people use for hiking uh, southern california all the time all the like time. the santa monica mountains are filled with them yeah and people and, hike and them there are lots of them uh throughout northern california too like they're they're extremely useful and important uh and the long short is yes we should have more um in, oh, in anywhere okay. where there's danger right they're uh they're they're throughout you know the hills and in, in the east bay of the bay area right and and for a good reason, because 
they're 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 trying to block anything that might go wrong and all that protected land that's on the other edge of that hill um, why don't they why don't we have more of them is there, is there some is it just the expense of it or are there people fighting it because they think it's not good for you know whatever plant i haven't seen people fighting it hard yeah. um you know uh i you know, actually in, in my community in in the hills that we, we actually expanded ours you know the neighborhood just kind of organized and does the work um uh and so there there it, it there's more and more happening uh and you know, and, and fire chiefs are really leading, like, we're going to put a break here, we're going to put a break there. Hmm. Um, you know, I think, honestly, a lot of this is like, this is, to remind us, like, pre-2016, it was a different world, right? We did yeah. not have this as much. And now, uh, it's it's changed over the last five years. Yeah. And so, we're, we're playing a little bit of catch up. Yeah. And there's no way this is a fluke. I mean, I think that's one of the things we're going to have to just... No, this agree. is the new reality. This is a reality. It's not yeah. stopping. It's going to yeah. get worse in all likelihood. I mean, as I said perhaps. earlier, we got to put a lot of money to work, you know, at a at we, at doing forest management, forest thinning and things. I I wish there was a way to reduce the temperature and and and, th- and do those things, but that's it's not going to happen. And mm-hmm. so what we need to do is is reduce the fuel load. Uh, and that just takes a lot of concerted effort and and work and then protect people and incentivize them not to build in places that had uh, that are high risk and 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 that's the new reality and you've raised money for your company you didn't get into yc but you did raise money (laughs) and you've been growing this business um i'm assuming you're hiring if somebody wanted to work on this like really incredible project uh we are uh, yeah yeah uh, we're hiring always looking for great great machine learning engineers uh with great earth science backgrounds uh infrastructure engineers where can people Uh, find out more and track your progress over time yeah, our website is our o u r kettle k e t t l e dot com. Uh, same handle on Twitter. Is that because the kettle is uh, boiling now, and we have to keep an eye on it? That's that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's one of the reasons. The other one uh, was uh, you know there's a there's an old saying like we're all in this kettle of fish together, um, oh, yeah. and it was like you know this is one of the things I love about insurance is like it's it's this system that allows humans to cooperate at this giant yes. scale right like what we're doing when you pay your premiums even if it's terrible is you're actually putting your money together and saying hey jay cal if you get hit by that you know fire this year i got your back i'll, I'll throw yeah. you a buck beautiful and 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 we'll do it. it's beautiful it's totally beautiful um and uh and it's like you know we, we we can make this thing work better um and and the reality is the models that are being used uh have been not really updated like this industry was the the og data scientists like invented data science uh, the industry, you know, the, the industry 500 years ago of, of actuarial tables, um, it hasn't had an update. And, you know, we can now land spacecraft and have cars drive themselves. This, yeah. this original data science should, uh, should get an update. Absolutely. Uh, is, uh, are drones playing a role yet in the data that you're using or low planes? Imagery because, capture. Yeah. yeah, and then, yeah, yeah we're I not doing it ourselves. Talking but we, about those, oh, you, you use third party services? Yeah. 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 I think those, there's also the blimps and stuff like that, like Project yep. Loon and some of those like balloons that are able to get like really good data. So, I mean, it's really interesting. We have all these data sources that are looking for people to build machine learning and computer visualization on top of them. And you're an example of one of them. So it's exactly. super cool. All right. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the pod and we'll see you all next time. Bye bye. <laughs>